Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Crystal Clear here. You're listening to more Morrowinds and it's good Friday, except it was shitty. Um, let me tell you a little something about Carl Jung, great psychoanalytic artist who was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud, the great cokehead pervert. In his last writings, Jung talked about his own life in this way. I've had much trouble getting along with my ideas. There was a demon in me. It overpowered me. I've offended many people. I had no patience with people aside from my patients. I had to obey an inner law which was imposed on me and left me no freedom of choice. A creative person has little power over his own life. He is not free. He is captive and driven by his demon. Yes, we're talking about demons again. Check out Garrison Demoniac episode if you want to know about more demons. I am Legion. Um, so this is what a uh, guy, great writer Thomas More, had to say about Jung. For all the struggle, Jung did not suffer emptiness in his work life. Just the opposite. His demon led him to a highly original and satisfying life work. In spite of his rueful words at the end, he was not an unhappy person. He comes across as a complicated man who understood the mixture of forces and emotions that go into a full life. That he was often ridiculed and dismissed as crazy and eccentric didn't seem to bother him. And he knew consciously that following his demon would lead to a controversial life work. Jung's critics tend to be those who envision a rational life as the norm and ideal. Jung never did such a thing. Theoretically, he defined the self as a midpoint or overlap between the conscious and reasonable life on one side and the life of passion and unconsciousness on the other. Personally, he lived this multidimensional life and became an effective healer. People all over the world came to him for his guidance. Jung's example gives us the opportunity here to note that a life work is not the result of rational planning and preparation alone. You have to develop attitudes and strategies for allowing the demonic force to show itself and allow yourself to experiment with it. This results in a complicated life, using the word in a positive sense. You do things that to others might seem unreasonable, but you do them because you know they are necessary for the fulfillment of your destiny. You may not choose them for yourself, but you do them because you see their necessity. Well, and that pretty much sums up why I am the reincarnation of Carl Jung. Just kidding. That sums up why I do more Morgulons amongst other weird things I do. I'm not getting paid, although someday I'll figure out how to turn on some kind of thing where you can pay me, and that'd be great. Thanks ahead of time. You're the greatest. Tell your friends, and someday somebody will throw some change in my hat. I really appreciate you being here. I'm going to take a short break from the episodes we've been doing, reading uh, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Um, This show got really intellectual in season four. I I like this show when it was funny. Now she's just blabbering on about some shit. Please, please. We'll get to the comment cave later. Um, I want to take a break from the metamorphosis because, well, 
I got some pretty shitty news on April Fool's Day, and it was not a joke. I do want to talk about mental health, though. Mental health, yes. The kind of health that's not physical health. Wait, what? The body and the brain are connected by a, what's it called? A neck? They're making new scientific medical discoveries every single day, folks. Or maybe not. Stay tuned. The American job market roared back to life in March with 916,000 jobs added, the biggest gain since August. I am triumphant. All right, let's talk about mental health. There was a great article in the New York Times, and I just read it yesterday. I actually didn't read the whole thing because I was like, ooh, I'm going to share this with more Margalange. All right, so this is a great article from the April Fool's Day issue of uh, the New York Times. Science plays the long game, but people have mental health issues now. I've reported on behavior and mental health for 20 years. As I exit, I can't help but wonder why researchers have placed so little emphasis on helping people in distress today. Bro, I'm doing it. I'm trying. Y'all, you feel a little less stressed? Got your mind distracted? You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you as well. Um, When I joined the science staff in 2004, reporters in the department had a saying, a reassuring mantra of sorts, people will always come to the science section if only to read about progress. I think about that a lot as I say goodbye to my job covering psychiatry, psychology, brain biology, and big data social science as if they were all somehow related. The behavior beat, as it's known, allowed tremendous freedom. I wrote about the mental upsides of binge drinking, playing the lotto, and sports fandom. I covered basic lab research, the science of learning and memory, the experience of recurrent anguish through the people who had to live with it, and much, much more. More Morgulons? No, you didn't, but you still could write one more article about me. Like most science reporters, I had wanted to report on something big, to have a present at the creation run that would shake up our understanding of mental health problems. At minimum, I expected research that would help people in distress improve their lives. But during my tenure, the science informing mental health care did not proceed smoothly along any trajectory. On the one hand, the field attracted enormous scientific talent, and there were significant discoveries, particularly in elucidating levels of consciousness in brain injury patients who appear unresponsive. Uh, People we thought were brain dead, y'all, maybe some of them weren't. (laughs) That's the bad news. Uh, The good news is maybe some of them weren't. Um, And in formulating the first persuasive hypothesis for a cause for schizophrenia based in brain biology. Well, dude, I've yet to hear about that. Love to, though. On the other hand, the science did little to improve the lives of the millions of people living with persistent mental distress. That's, I mean, you know, Morgulons, Morgies people are just a small fraction of that. But man, we got a special kind of distress, don't we, y'all? Almost every measure of our collective mental health, rates of suicide, anxiety, depression, addiction, deaths, Psychiatric prescription use went the wrong direction, even as access to services expanded greatly. What happened? After 20 years covering the field here and at the Los Angeles Times, I have a few theories and some ideas on what might be required to turn things around. Oh, you do? Well, I do as well. We'll talk more about that. But anyway, uh, 
So he's saying that like early on in his job, he started receiving like tons of like inquiries about like our son is suicidal. What do we do? And his friends and family would ask him questions like that as well. Um, He says, I always provided suggestions and referrals with a disclaimer and helped to decode the psychiatric jargon if needed. I also followed up later to see how things were going. This second conversation was a reminder every time that the mental health system for all its caring professionals is chaotic and extremely difficult to navigate. There are few system-wide standards and vast and hidden differences in quality of care. Good luck finding an authoritative guide to navigating the full range of appropriate options. Maybe that's my next podcast, y'all. In time, those seeking help became the lens through which I saw my job and their questions became my own. What does a diagnosis of bipolar really mean in a young child? Uh, It means somebody is trying to sell mama some pharmaceutical drugs. How trustworthy is this drug? Is this drug necessary? How trustworthy is the evidence? One answer to that last question came in the mid-2000s when the Food and Drug Administration held a series of hearings on whether antidepressant drugs like Paxil, Prozac, and Zoloft backfired in a small number of users, causing suicidal thinking and behavior. The hearings were hair-raising. Hundreds of family members who had lost a loved one crowded the rooms, their anger and expectations sucking up most of the oxygen. And some of the parents, it was clear, knew at least as much about the drugs as the doctors. By 2006, the FDA had concluded that a so-called black box warning on antidepressant drug labels was warranted, citing the suicide risk for children, adolescents, and young adults. Many psychiatrists were dismayed by the decision, insisting it would discourage the use of valuable medications. The antidepressant wars, as this debate came to be known, it rages on today, also helped uncover the influence of industry money on academic psychiatry. No shit. The pharmaceutical industry paid researchers at brand name institutions to talk up drugs at seminars and conferences. It paid for, quote, expert panels to promote their use. And it often had outside firms write up the studies themselves, massaging the data. No shit. This state of affairs made it virtually impossible to interpret psychiatric drug studies. They still are. They're still being conducted in this exact same manner, folks. Telling you, there's no good evidence that any of them works. If you feel they work, that's awesome. I'm glad something's helping you. But the science does not bear that out. Um, uh, This state of affairs made it virtually impossible to interpret psychiatric drug studies. Some experiments were undoubtedly honest, rigorous efforts to document the diffuse effects of a medication. Others were no more than, quote, infomercials. In the phrase of the late Dr. Bernard Carroll, one of the most stubborn critics of his own profession, drug ads, in effect, dressed up as research. The infomercials were usually easy to spot, but not always. And without knowing the backstory, the money trail, you couldn't be sure what to believe. When it came to judging government-funded research projects, a cleaner enterprise, presumably, I again asked the questions that people in crisis continually asked me. Is this study finding useful for my son or my sister in any way? Or more generously, given the pace of research, could this work potentially be useful to someone at some point in their lifetime? The answer almost always was no. Again, this is not to say that the tools and technical understanding of brain biology didn't advance. It's just that those advances didn't have an impact on mental health care one way or the other. It's so fucking true. Don't take my word for it. In his forthcoming book, 
Recovery, Healing the Crisis of Care in American Mental Health. Dr. Thomas Insel, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, writes, The scientific progress in our field was stunning. But while we studied the risk factors for suicide, the death rate had climbed 33%. While we identified the neuroanatomy of addiction, overdose deaths had increased by threefold. While we mapped the genes for schizophrenia, People with this disease were still chronically unemployed and dying 20 years early. And on it goes to this day. Government agencies like the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Institute of Mental Health continue to double down, sinking enormous sums of taxpayer money into biological research aimed at someday finding a neural signature or, quote, blood test for psychiatric diagnoses that could be maybe one day in the future useful, all while people are in crisis now. I've read about some of these studies. For example, the National Institutes of Health is running a 300 million brain imaging study of more than 10,000 young children with so many interacting variables of experience and development that it's hard to discern what the study's primary goals are. The agency also has a $50 million project underway to try to understand the myriad cascading and partly random processes that occur during neural development, which could underlie some mental problems. These kinds of big science efforts are well-intentioned, but the payoffs are uncertain indeed. The late Scott Lillenfield, a psychologist and skeptic of big money brain research, had his own terminology for these kinds of projects. They're either fishing expeditions or Hail Marys, he'd say. Take your pick. When people are drowning, they're less interested in the genetics of respiration than in a life preserver. In 1973, the prominent microbiologist Norton Zinder took over a committee reviewing grants by the National Cancer Institute to investigate viruses. He concluded the program had become a gravy train for a small group of favored scientists and advised slashing their support in half. A hard Zinder-like review of current behavioral science spending would, I suspect, result in equally heavy cuts. How can the fields of behavior and brain science begin to turn the corner and become relevant in people's lives? For one, prominent scientists who recognize the urgency will have to speak more candidly about how money, both public and private, can warp research priorities. And funders, for their part, will have to listen, perhaps supporting more small teams working to build the psychological equivalent of a life preserver. Treatments and supports and innovations that could be implemented in the near future. How about podcasts, people? Is anybody thinking outside the box? No, not really. Just more pills? Yeah, just whatever. Take your pills. There's a reason that so many people use binge drinking, playing the lotto, and runaway eating to support their mental health. Because the effects are reliable. Because they don't require a prescription. And because they're available right now. Great article great article. It's time we take action to help ourselves because the fucking scientists and doctors sure as fuck are too busy. Writing papers and giving seminars on the drug company's dime. Not dogging science or information for the sake of information, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but you guys, life preservers. Life preservers. More Mortalons is a life preserver for me. I hope it helps you a little bit. And I really appreciate you listening, participating, and happy Friday. A very, very special demigod was publicly executed on a Friday just like this. Yes. Stay tuned. He might come alive. <laughs>